open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21 as we, uh, we continue through the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, we've been in the, the narrative of Abraham for quite some time, uh, and we're, we're nearing the end of that, but there are some significant events remaining before we are done with Abraham's story. And in particular, this morning, we finally, uh, and I say finally, we've been uh, in anticipation for weeks. Abram has, uh, Abraham has been in anticipation for 25 years. Finally, the birth of Isaac, the birth of the promised son. We have uh, a sort of little advent in the text this morning as we come to that season here in just a few weeks of Advent where we remember the first coming of Christ and look forward to the second coming of Christ. And here, Isaac uh, is, is not only in the line of, uh, of the Messiah, it's, it's through Isaac that the Messiah will eventually come, but Isaac himself is also uh, a picture of the coming of that Messiah. And so we've got uh, these similarities, uh, a miraculous birth of a promised child. Uh, it's going to be a different kind of miracle, but the, the birth of Christ to the Virgin Mary is also a miraculous birth of a promised child. And so we, we see this, this anticipation of the final fulfillment of all of God's promises this morning. Uh, before I read the text this morning, I do want to point out that we're, we're going to read through verse 21 here in chapter 21, and it gets into uh, what happens to Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, your English Bible probably, and it does if you're using the English Standard Version, uh, refer to Ishmael as a child. And uh, it gives the impression that he's, he's quite small. Uh, Ishmael's probably about 18 years old at this point. And child is not the only way that that Hebrew word can be translated. Uh, it's somebody who's young and inexperienced. It's a completely appropriate word for him in the Hebrew. And unfortunately, our English translators, in my opinion, did not choose the best word to communicate what was happening here with Ishmael. Uh, and so don't let that throw you off if you've done the math in your head and you know Ishmael is, uh, is quite old here. Uh, he's, uh, he's a child in some sense, but not that small. Let's, uh, let me pray and let's read the text this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We come to your word this morning and we know that even having this word is of no use to us if your spirit is not at work in the reading and the preaching of this word. And so we thank you that the Spirit is not only at work according to your promise, but that that Spirit dwells in each one of us who is trusting in Christ and repenting of our sins. Father, we pray that, uh, that as we read and consider this text this morning, if there are those present, those within hearing, uh, who remain dead in their trespasses and sins, that you would miraculously open their eyes and open their ears that they would see and hear the truth of Jesus Christ, the good news of our salvation and belief. Father, would you be present with us this morning as we come into your word now, uh, accomplish all that you have purposed it to accomplish, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 21, beginning in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. 
Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham, Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and the skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Uh, well, there's, uh, there's all sorts of things in the text today. Three that we are going to consider in particular are the fact that God always keeps His promises. God always keeps His promises. Uh, second, that God's promises are never delayed, but are perfectly timed. God's promises are never delayed, but are perfectly timed. And finally, God's saving grace is particular. God's saving grace is particular. First, God always keeps His promises. What kind of God do we serve? What kind of God is it that we worship? What has He taught us about Himself? It, it almost, uh, it, there's, no, there's no climax to this. There's, there's no shock and awe remaining for us anymore for me to stand before you this morning and say that we serve a God who keeps His promises. Uh, his Word is filled with promises. And history is filled with God's faithfulness in keeping His promises. And He tells us that He is a God who keeps His promises. God is a God who makes impossible promises and works miraculous fulfillments. He tells us right off the bat, we, we get this uh, immediately three uh, strong statements as we come into the text here. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said... Uh, the, the narrator, Moses here, is reminding us that what is happening to Sarah here in conceiving to bear a child is according to God's promise. And the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram, Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken 
to him. God did precisely what he said he would do, and he did it precisely when he said he would do it. God is a God who keeps his promises. We're, we're taught this throughout Scripture. Some of the, the better known statements, Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O Israel, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? This is the God that we serve. And what, what are we to do with this? Yes, yes, God keeps his promises. It's almost uh, such a, a given for us, so understood by us, that, that fact we take it, I think, for granted, uh, and yet, all too often, it's this very truth with which we wrestle. Now, what do we do with the truth that God always keeps His promises? First of all, we need to know what those promises are. Uh, it does us little good to know that God is a God who keeps His promises if we don't know what promises He's made. Or, perhaps, in our current culture, what promises he has not made. Now, it's important for us to recognize the error in uh, some of the teaching that's present in what passes for the church today. The prosperity gospel, for example, which says that God has promised you health and wealth in this life if you will only have faith. Now, it is rank heresy to suggest that God has made such promises. It is a wicked twisting of God's word to suggest if you will only try hard enough to believe that there will be no suffering for you in this life, and in fact, above all others, you will have health and wealth and happiness. God has not promised any such thing, but He has made promises to us. He's made promises to us right now in this life, Promises that the, the Holy Spirit lives in us if we are those who are trusting in Christ and repenting of our sins. That that Holy Spirit indwelling us gives us assurance of our salvation and is working sanctification in us, is, is at work in us by these ordinary means, by prayer, by coming to God's Word, by being together in fellowship as we gather around the preaching of the Word and we come to the table. As we celebrate the sacraments, God is at work in these things. He has promised us. In the New Testament, Paul expresses this confidence. He says, I am confident that he will complete the work he has begun in you. He promised to begin it, and he has begun it. And he has promised that having begun it, he will finish it. And so God is, is at work even now in us keeping His promises. He has given us His Holy Spirit as a seal, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, until the day that Christ returns. We are kept, we are preserved, we are loved, and God expresses that love to us in tangible ways in His Word, at His table, and in fellowship with one another around the Gospel. These are promises God has made to us. He's, he's promised us that there will be suffering for His people until Christ returns. Suffering is not something broken about God's plan. It's not something contrary to God's plan. 
But God has ordained that we will suffer it as a part of how it is that he's sanctifying us and how it is that his word is going out into the world and to everything that is true about him that he has declared in his word is being expressed to those who have never heard of him. This is how God is accomplishing his purposes in the world is through suffering and he has promised us that we will suffer. Christ said to his disciples, do you see how they treat me? Well, I'm the master of the house. You should not expect as servants in the house to be treated any better. We have these promises that God is with us. Christ says to us at the end of Matthew, uh, as he's completing his earthly ministry, he says, I will be with you even to the ends of the age. We have the promises of God now, and we have the promises of God that are not yet fulfilled. God has promised that Christ is coming again. He's promised that when he comes, we will be resurrected and be made perfect, not only physically perfect, which I think is the easier thing for us to think of and to imagine, but spiritually perfect. We will desire only what God desires. We will be completely cleansed of sin with no possibility of ever sinning again. That's what's in store for the people of God. He has promised fellowship with him forever. Justice executed against the ungodly. Scripture is filled with the promises of God for his people. We could go to, to any number of passages, but I find that Revelation 21 gathers so many of these promises into one place and expresses them so beautifully. Listen to what John says in the Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 8. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will have perfect fellowship with the triune God forever. He goes on to say, He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Salvation for his people and justice for the ungodly. These are the promises of God in eternity so that when we come to God's word and we see him so clearly keeping his promises here and are reminded once again, taught once again, that God is a God who keeps his promises, then we're invited to review those promises and to trust that he will keep those promises. God has promised to preserve his people until the day of redemption. And he's filled his word with these promises and proven without fail that he will keep them. Never has a promise of God failed. Listen, this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we worship. This is the, the foundation of all of our hope. 
is that God has and will keep his promises perfectly. Second, this morning, God's promises are never delayed, but are perfectly timed. Uh, It's no accident that it was 25 years from the first promise made to Abraham that he would have a son, uh, that, that he would be the father of many nations, 25 years until that promise was fulfilled. Not only that, but uh, the first promise to us that one would be born in the line of Eve that would deliver us from the curse, uh, depending on, on how you, you want to count the years, it was at least 4,000 years from the giving of that promise until Christ was born. 4,000 years before that promise was fulfilled. How easy it must have been for Abraham and Sarah to become impatient and to doubt. We've already seen that they became impatient enough that they tried to take matters into their own hands. They tried to to do the work of God, to fulfill the promise of God for him. And it's no wonder 25 years is a long time. And of course, we're reminded that, uh, that they were getting on in years. It was a miraculous birth. And it's no different for us, perhaps. We may uh, find ourselves wondering, where is God? What's taking so long? Doesn't he care? Why doesn't he come to us? Why doesn't he deliver us from the sin and misery of this life? Uh, it's, It's a very real question, one that people wrestle with. One that I, I know people who have walked away from the faith because they wrestled with this question and they, they finally decided God is not there. there. There can't be a God. If there was, he wouldn't let this happen. The timing of God's promises is absolutely perfect. We ourselves in the middle of difficult circumstances may cry out to God, but he doesn't seem to answer. There's no quick resolution. Too often the temptation is to begin to question God's goodness, to question his love, perhaps even his wisdom, or whether or not he even exists. It's vital that in the, in the, the difficulties that we experience, these moments of temptation, to begin to question these things, it's vital for us that we remember that God's timing in keeping his promises is perfect. And he's always demonstrated it to be perfect in history. His timing is for our good and for his glory. When we suffer well, We're being sanctified. Why doesn't God answer immediately? Why doesn't God make the problems go away? Why doesn't he provide the thing that we we believe needs to be provided right now? Sometimes God appears to delay because he is at work sanctifying us. He's at work in the trials and the hardships calling us to trust in him in the midst of those things. Providing us with an experience of being carried through these things, just as the psalmist experienced and famously expresses in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalm 
sometimes when we suffer and God does not immediately answer and resolve it, it's because God is at work in us, teaching us, sanctifying us. Sometimes when we suffer well, it's a testimony to God. When others see us suffering, and yet in the midst of suffering, we cling to Christ and we continue to profess Him, and we are unwilling to deny Him or to accuse Him, no matter what happens, those around us see this, they hear this, and it is a testimony to God. It's a fairly well-known story uh, among missionaries of a family that, uh, that was required to dig their own graves. And as the soldiers stood around them, forcing them to dig their own graves in anticipation of the family being killed and buried in these graves, uh, a teenage member of the family managed to escape and run off into the jungle. As the soldiers were out looking for this, this teenager, trying to gather this teenager back up, the family is calling out to the teenager to come back to them and die with them to go and see Christ together and to suffer for him. And the testimony that has come to us from that event is the conversion of the soldiers as they witnessed a faith so bizarre, so confounding, that they could do nothing but believe in the God that would inspire this kind of faith. It would have been easy for the family to wail and to cry out, God, where are you? God, how could you let this happen? We have been faithful to you. We have confessed your name and you will let us die like this? God, where are you? But instead, this, this family recognized that they were called as a witness to suffer as a testimony for Christ. Why does God delay? Sometimes He delays so that we might give testimony to Him and His faithfulness. Why is God's timing so often confusing to us? Sometimes God is demonstrating in His timing patience towards the lost. We're a people of two minds, aren't we? Together with John in Revelation, we cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet we recognize that as Christ tarries, the gospel is going out, and the lost are being found. God tells us in His Word that the apparent delay is one that is intended to be a demonstration of God's patience. As he gathers the lost. You see, brothers and sisters, from God's word, there are all kinds of reasons, perfect reasons, for God to delay in fulfilling his promises. It only appears to be a delay to us, and we're, we'll engage in, in some mild semantics here. Inasmuch as a delay seems to be an unexpected thing, an unplanned thing, we were going to do this thing, and we were going to do it in this timing, but we have been delayed. There is no delay in God keeping His promises. God has not only ordained that these things would take place, He has ordained their timing, he has ordained the means by which they will come to pass. And he teaches us this throughout his word as well. 
God is not delayed. He is not delaying as though his plan was unfolding in fits and starts and encountering difficulties and having to overcome them. He determined from the very beginning when Christ would come and when Christ would return. It has happened precisely as God intended it and will continue to unfold precisely as God intends it, not sooner and not later. God says through the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk has been crying out to God for salvation, deliverance not from the nations, but deliverance from the wicked leadership of the people of Judah. And God has said, I'm coming. There is a deliverance. And he says to Habakkuk, it may seem slow, but it will not fail. Be patient. It will surely come. It has, he says, an appointed time. What do we do with this truth? Well, first of all, it provides us, I hope, with, with some confidence that the, the apparent delay of God in keeping his promises is not in any way, shape, form, or fashion an invitation to doubt that God will keep his promises, to wonder if God has forgotten his promises. No, he has appointed a time to fulfill each promise. And it will be fulfilled in its appointed time. But also, step back for a second and consider what this means about the God that we serve and worship. It means that he is an all-powerful God. Think of, uh, of not only his goodness in keeping his promises and doing so when he said he would, but the power that is God's, the infinite Power that enables him to say this will happen. It will happen as I have said and when I have said it will happen and nothing can stop me. The wisdom of God in knowing what the proper time is to accomplish all of his promises. There's a, a word in New Testament Greek uh, that could be sort of carelessly translated time, but it actually carries with it in this one word the idea of an appointed time. And it's this word that's translated in your New Testament that when the fullness of time had come. Right? Christ comes in the fullness of time at the perfect moment in history. God is not delayed, he is not confused, he is not sidetracked. Uh, nothing has gotten in his way that's required him to go over or around or through. Everything in all of history has been orchestrated by God in his wisdom to serve his glory and the good of his people. And all of that is here in the text. Not just this morning's text, but everything we've been reading for the, the last weeks as we've, we've 
considered Abraham and Sarah and their story and the promises God has made to them and the apparent delay in the promises where they become convinced even at one point that God needs a little bit of help and they end up, of course, just making a big mess out of the whole thing. 25 years they've waited. And when God finally keeps His promise, He does it without their help in the perfect time so that He receives all of the glory and they recognize it as the blessing that it is. Finally this morning, God's saving grace is particular. God's saving grace is particular. And what do I mean by that? There's a clear division in the text between those who belong to the covenant of God's saving grace and those who do not. When we come to the, the second part of our reading this morning, starting in verse 8 there, as, uh, as uh, Ishmael apparently is engaged in mocking Isaac, and Sarah sees it and goes to Abraham and says, send them away. He will not inherit together with my son Isaac. Abraham is, is torn over this. Uh, he's displeased, it says, very displeased for the sake of his son. And here, almost certainly, Ishmael is in mind. He's displeased for the sake of his son on account of his son. And what this means, Abraham loves Ishmael, but God comes to him and says, do what Sarah says. And don't worry, Abraham, you are the one through whom the promises are coming, through whom they will be fulfilled in Isaac. Isaac is the one in whom your offspring will be named, not Ishmael. And so you, Abraham, will not provide for Ishmael. I will. I'll provide for him. But it will not be through the covenant promise. That will come through Isaac. There's a sharp distinction made in the text between those who are a part of the covenant people who, to whom covenant promises have been, are being made, and in whom, for whom, and to whom those promises will be fulfilled. Isaac is the son of the promise and he will not also inherit with anyone else but will inherit everything that God has promised. Ishmael is not and will, will receive nothing from Abraham. He'll receive the common grace of God and even uh, some particular provision from God as we see God saying he will become uh, a great nation as well. Previously in the text, God had said that Ishmael would be the father of 12 nations. There would be 12 sons so there is some particular provision being made by God for Ishmael, but salvation is reserved for the covenant child, the spiritual offspring of Abraham. And here we begin to see already, because Ishmael is the offspring of Abraham, and yet he is not the one through whom the promise is coming. It, it turns out that the covenant people are not a people identified ethnically, but a people identified spiritually. Paul says this quite clearly in Romans 9. He says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, 
because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now listen, all of this good news about God being one who keeps his promises, about the, the timing of his promises being fulfilled, being perfect. We know he will fulfill those promises that have not yet been fulfilled. We have all of this great confidence, this hope that is ours. Listen, that hope is reserved for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sin. That hope does not belong to those who will not trust in Christ who are putting their hope of salvation in anything else. Listen, there is, is one big story that is the underlying truth of all reality. God has created all things. And He has created us for fellowship with Him. But by our sin, we have rebelled against Him and that fellowship has been broken. And because He is our Maker, He is right and He is just in executing his wrath against us because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And there is no hope of salvation for anyone apart from Jesus Christ. God's grace is for all who believe in and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And it is not given to anyone else. The question really that, that you have to answer this morning is, am I a child of Abraham according to I, Isaac, right? That is, according to faith. Am I a spiritual child of God? And you answer that question according to whether or not you believe in Christ or trusting in Him. You recognize that you rightly deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ received that wrath in himself. He suffered the wrath we deserve. He took all of the wrath of God upon himself in our place. And if you will believe in that and trust in that alone for your salvation, if you will throw your hands up and say, God, I am a sinner and I deserve your judgment, but I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and I am going to trust in that work, then the promises are for you. There are promises for you if you will not trust in Christ, if you will trust in your own work instead, uh, if you will reject even the idea that you deserve punishment, then the promises of God for you in His Word are His eternal wrath and judgment that will be executed on the day that Christ returns. There's a stark contrast in the text this morning between those who are the children of promise and those who are not. And the difference is a matter of faith. Children, your, uh, your parents may be nice to other children. Uh, and in some sense, they may even love other children, but they have a special love for you. And I hope that, that you sense this. I hope that you recognize that there are things your parents have for you that they don't have for other children. Ways that they love you, ways that they speak to you, and ways that they treat you that are yours as their children and yours 
alone. They probably don't give a lot of Christmas presents to other children. Or if they do, it's not anything like the presents they give to you. They probably don't throw a lot of birthday parties for other children. They do for you because you are theirs. They love you in a special way. And that's what we see in the text this morning. God is saying to Abraham and to Isaac, I love you in a special way. You are mine. You are my children. That's what we have here. This exclusive quality of the gospel is what Christ is talking about as John reports it in chapter 14. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Peter says it this way in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is our only refuge, our only hope. And thanks be to God, he has promised that everyone who puts their faith and trust in him and repents of their sins, their sins are forgiven. And we have an eternity together with him in perfection. These are the promises that God has made to his people. And this is the God that we worship and serve, one who is perfect in keeping his promises, one who is not delayed or in any way thwarted, but whose promises are fulfilled in perfect timing, a God whose power and wisdom, his might, his perfection, his goodness, all converge together in the perfect fulfillment of his promises to his people, a God who has called a people to himself and thrown this invitation out to the entire world, everyone who will believe and repent shall be saved. What a glorious God we serve. What a gracious and merciful God we serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.